Good morning. So good to see you this morning. It's always good to be with you. It's always wonderful to share God's word. Um, uh, my name is John Ravel. I am not on staff at the church, uh, but my wife and I are uh, part of the Intro to Calvary class. So if we pass the exam, the final exam, we hope to become uh, members of this, this wonderful body, and we're looking forward to that. Pray for us. I, I understand it's real. Peter can be hard, you know. He, he, no, we're, we're excited to be here. Uh, before we get into uh, the Word, uh, why don't we stop and pray, ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, we thank you for the reality that all can be well with our soul. In what we experience in the difficult times, but also in the eternal uh, perspective that you have our soul in your hands. We thank you that you have made that possible through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the living word, through whom we come to know you. And then we thank you for the written word by which we come to know you better. And now this morning, as we look into uh, your word, we ask that you would accomplish good things in and through it. Open our hearts to receive what you have. Father, work despite the messenger and his weaknesses and failings. You know them, and they are many. But you are good. Father, thank you that you work through earthen vessels to carry glorious content. So we ask that you would help us to see the content this morning, because it is good. We give you this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many here have ever moved to a new community and had to go church shopping? Let me see your hands. A good portion, uh, maybe the majority. How many of you are here at Calvary as a result of going church shopping? Let me see your hands. A significant number. So I suspect the, the bulk of the rest of you are, have been here for a while and, and didn't have that experience. But we have moved and we have been in that position of having to find a quote unquote good church. And you have a checklist. If you're Parent of a young child, a toddler, uh, an infant, you're looking for a church that has a decent nursery facility. If you go in and it's trashed out and there's dirty diapers everywhere and there's crumbs, you're probably not going to go back uh, and visit that church again. If you are parent of a teenager, you look for a vibrant, active youth group. Uh, of course, you look for sound biblical teaching, you look for quality worship, but you, you're looking for some key things to make sure you're a fit with that church. Now, years ago, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we were uh, in an assembly with uh, some folks, some members who were asked, what do you look for if you're looking for a church? And some of these things came up and one dear saint said, I look at the bumper stickers and see what are, what's, and if it's, if it's, it has Bible quotes on it, then that's the church I want to go to. And Debbie and I looked at each other, and we've rolled our eyes, and I think there's a little more involved than what's on the church, uh, on the bumper stickers in the, car, in the parking lot. When I was in high school and in college, the indicators of a happening church back then were primarily related to its 
bus ministry. Now, some of you younger folks wonder what on earth that's, uh, I'm talking about. But if your hair is the same shade as mine, you may remember the big emphasis on having a fleet of buses that could go through the community and bring the children to church. And that was, that was a key indicator that this church was, uh, had it going. Uh, things were happening the right way at that church. And things evolved, and that, that fad kind of passed. And then there was the church growth movement. And it, I think this flowed out of the fastest-growing churches in the country. And there were a list of the top ten. And you could go and find out the top ten fastest-growing churches and what they were doing to grow so fast, which I think bled over, uh, dovetailed over into this church growth movement. And there were schools that you could go to to learn what does it take to have a growing church, because obviously a growing church is indicative of it being a happening church. And that emphasis has kind of faded away, and other things have come in. There are assessment tools, and there are books written on the indicators of a healthy church. But in going through this passage, I've come to realize that a lot of these emphases have overlooked a critical, essential, foundational mark of a healthy church. Now, if you've been with us, even if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Revelation, and Peter has uh, done an outstanding job in getting the ball rolling. Uh, So let's look at the passage together. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, 7, 8, uh, and uh, 6, Well, we'll get there when we finish. Uh, But read along with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, pastor emphasized uh, last week that the angels could be any number, uh, could be a literal angel, angelic being who was assigned the responsibility of the church, could be the uh, lead pastor, it could be the spear of the church. My slight inclination is that it was probably the pastor, but that's not something that I'm going to, uh, to take to the grave. And if I find out that's not the case when I get to heaven, I'm not going to ask for my money back. You know, it's not that kind of thing. So, uh, but the lampstands, the, the church was indicative, in the, and Peter showed this, the model of a, a lamp, an oil lamp, a stand that held and broadcast a light. And so Ephesus was one of those seven lampstands. And this is the Lord's word to that church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have grown weary. I have not grown weary, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise." Just a, a little bit about the church at Ephesus and uh, what is going on there. 
and, and why this is important to us. But I'd like to spend the bulk of our time uh, this morning in looking at some of the implications because there is some powerful stuff here. Now, in the bulletin, you'll see a lot of notes. I apologize. I don't typically have this many notes. I'm hoping that you can write it down or use the app. The app, by the way, is awesome. I, I really enjoy uh, taking notes on that. And it may be difficult to absorb the bulk of this this morning, but my encouragement is take it, write down the notes, and reflect on it and go back and go through it uh, this week. So let's first talk about uh, the church at Ephesus and Ephesus itself. The city itself was a, uh, an outstanding, it was the, uh, the lead city in Asia Minor at the time. Uh, it was the largest city, it was a, a port for commerce, uh, several of the trade routes for the area came through there. It was a religious center, the temple for, um, uh, for Diana was there. And so it was, it was large, they say between 250 to 500,000, so roughly the population is the area of Bridgeport and New Haven. So it, was, uh, it really stood out as a leading city in Asia Minor at the time. And the church itself was also following that path. Uh, it was started, uh, Paul uh, brought Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla to to the Lord, and he left them there in Ephesus, and they led Apollos to the Lord, and they started the first group that served as the core of the church. And then Paul came back and spent a couple of years there and helped lead the church and got it established and growing. Later on, when Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, Timothy had the responsibility to help grow it and get it further. And then John the Apostle, writing the book of Revelation, had a leadership responsibility. So this was the, uh, the lead church at the time. If there was a happening church, it was the church at Ephesus. They had a history. They had a legacy. They had a reputation. They had a lot going for it. And uh, John himself identifies several key points. So first, this church was very Active. He said, I know your works, how you toil. And that word for toil is exerting all of your energy. They were a busy, busy church. And a lot of times we think that a busy, active church is an indicator of it being a healthy church. One of the phrases I heard, and I come from a Baptist background, is it was applied to Baptist, but it can apply to any church. Mary had a little lamb. It was a precious sheep. And then it joined the local church and died from lack of sleep. Uh, you know, the church at Ephesus, they had something every night. They had trunk or treat magnified. They had, uh, they had a youth group that was going on all kinds of mission trips. They had everything. And Jesus, in his uh, recognition, did not say that was negative. But this, they were very active. Secondly, they had overcome serious challenges and obstacles when it talks about persevering. Uh, they had faced multiple obstacles in the course, as any uh, church does that is truly trying to, to follow the Lord. So they overcome these challenges and the obstacles. They maintained moral purity. 
And in Ephesus, that was a challenge because the temple to Diana there, Diana had connections to the, uh, the false religion related to fertility. And so Ephesus was known for its immorality. So Ephesus stood out in the, the midst of uh, that immoral culture. They, were, they maintained moral purity. And they were acknowledged for that. And finally they overcame some of the doctrinal struggles that Paul had instructed Timothy. And it says that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which was a heretical uh, sect that was emerging. And so they maintained doctrinal fidelity. They had it going on. They were a happening church in the first century. But there's that phrase that has come up and is going to come up in most of these letters. Yet I have this against you. It says you have abandoned your, the love you had at first. Some translations may say your first love, but the ESV translation I think is most accurate. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. They were marked in their early days for having love. And so in the midst of all of these things that they had going on, they lacked the most important thing, love. Now, there, there may be some question. This is uh, two specific things, love for God and love for others. And this shouldn't surprise any of us. The, uh, the greatest command when the Pharisees jumped on Jesus and tried to pin him into a corner and said, what's the greatest command? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, love is a central component in uh, the, the whole theology, Old Testament and New Testament. And there is some debate as whether, you know, is it love for God, love for others? All of the resources that I have come up with have the consensus that he's talking about this this foundational love for God and corresponding, flowing out of this, this love for others. And that's what they were noted for when they were established. And Jesus' observation that this is all focused on was that they, that they had lost that love which was there at the foundation and for which they were marked and by which they were marked for so many years. And so it leads to, in your notes you'll see blanks to fill in here, some observations about this. Church activity without love is empty. It's hollow. It doesn't have any meaning. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Listen to these words. If I speak in tongues of angels, uh, of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love, or church activity without love is empty. Perseverance, they were noted for overcoming obstacles. Perseverance without love is worthless. 
moral purity without love is lethal. Let's pause there for a second. For the last 50 years or so, I've been exposed to all kinds of church traditions. And some of the deadliest I have seen has been a focus on maintaining moral purity apart from a focus on loving God and loving others. Make no mistake about it. Scripture is is clear that we are to maintain our moral purity, but it is supposed to flow out of our love for God, not merely as a reflection or uh, a declaration to others, this is what marks me as, as a follower of Christ. You've heard me say it before, there's a list of things that I don't do, and so I must be okay. Moral purity is essential, but it's not sufficient. All of the codes for you can't touch, you can't be close to, you can't uh, look at, you can't see these kinds of movies, all of those things, if it's not flowing out of, grounded in and flowing out of love for God, it can lead to spiritual death. It is lethal. And doctrinal fidelity without love is dead. Again, it is essential that we maintain doctrinal purity. However, I have seen churches, I have seen denominations place all of their focus on dotting all of our theological I's and crossing all of our theological T's and making sure we are doctrinally pure at the expense of loving others. And certainly not as a result of loving God. We are told to contend for the faith, but God never tells us to fight with each other over doctrinal purity. And folks, it grieves me to say, I have seen bitter exchanges between people who differed on some theological points. That if you don't agree to these five essential components, I can't have faith with you. And they're not points of salvation. If you don't agree with my standard of worship, we can't have fellowship. If you don't agree with my style of worship, we can't fellowship. You're less spiritual than you need to be because you don't understand things theologically the way I see it. And that kind of emphasis on doctrinal fidelity, if it's not Doctrinal fidelity is not flowing out of our love for God with a view of loving others. It's dead. It really is worthless. All of these things, if we're loving God, there will be activity. There will be perseverance. There will be moral purity. And there will be a focus on not letting us slip away from the essentials of God's word. But those things without love are useless and, in fact, can do more harm than good. It can lead to Pharisaism. And you've heard us talk about this many times. It is legalism, that which the Pharisees were guilty of. And the notion was, if we can have all of our ecclesiastical and theological ducks in a row, as church and doctrine, 
If we can have all of those lined up, then God's going to smile at us and he's going to bless us. And so we've got to put all of our time and energy and focus in getting all of these details lined up just right. So then we can say, God, we did it. And we can say to others, look, we did it. Here we are. And the problem is without love, all of those things can point to us, can point to me. And we can take a measure of pride in what we've done. And isn't that an oxymoron to take pride in something of God? Because if it's of God, only He can get the glory. And it may be through us, but it's generally despite us that He does the good things. These things are essential, but they're not the core. They're not sufficient. Peter and I come from the same orientation in, in preaching. We study the same philosophy. And the philosophy is not that you've got to go at least 45 minutes in order to cover all the bases. That's not, that's not the, the preaching emphasis. It may seem that way. But uh, there is consistently in our method of, of uh, preaching the focus on the big idea. And you've heard Peter say this several times. The big idea of this passage is this. Well, here's the big idea. A happening church without love ain't happening. Now, there's no blank in there, but you can still fill it in. There's no line, but we need to remember this. A church can be doing all of the things where people look and say, wow, look at that church. Look at the building. Look at the sanctuary. Look at the lights. Look at the worship team. Look at the pastor. The pastor has all the personality in the world. He's so eloquent. Look at the programs that they have. Look at all the, the, uh, the activities that they have. Look at their doctrine. Look at their whatever. But without love, it's not going to happen. And the warning is there is a need to repent. Part of this repentance is recognizing that this is about relationship more than ritual. I told you Debbie and I are in the intro to Calvary uh, class and one of the sisters in it talked about coming out of a background where the focus was on ritual as opposed to relationship. And the crux, the heart of our salvation is tied directly to a relationship, a love relationship. God for us and him calling us to love him and to love each other. And if we're not doing that, Jesus' words, his call to the church at Ephesus was to repent and to return to that love. If we're not doing that, a church that loses sight of this first, this foundational component of love is in danger of losing its position as a church declaring or projecting the light of God's glory. 
the, it says repent and return to the works you did early on. I want to put this in here. Works throughout the, the Old and New Testament generally focus on meeting the needs of people who are hurting. Uh, it's when Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light so shine among men that they would see your good works. Not your good sanctuary, not your good preaching, not your good worship team, not your good uh, schedule, not, that they would see your good works. I've told many people, I used to think maybe that was working in the, the uh, nursery or teaching middle school boys, Sunday school class, uh, and those may be good works. But the focus is meeting the needs of hurting people because God has a priority and a pattern of meeting the needs of hurting people. And so letting our light so shine among men as they would see our good works is being compassionate for those in need. I love the two uh, emphases, the two ministries that the church has, has taken on recently, Urban Impact and I Care Outreach. Both of those have this component. It is seeing the needs of others and meeting those needs. And so for a church that has lost sight of these priorities, the call is to repent and return to that love for God and love for others and that love flowing out to care for and, and minister to the needs of those who are hurting. So that's the essence of the message to the church in Ephesus. But for us to really take this home, we need to spend a little time talking about what the Bible stresses as love. What does love look like? Now today, whenever we love is loving little children when they're going through church halls and, and making noise. How can you not love that? We can use love for so many. That word, L-O-V-E, we can use it for so many different things. I love ice cream, and I do. I love my pet. I love my children, I love my wife, but those have different meanings, don't they? I love you, most of you. No. I love you. I love that movie I just saw. Has anybody seen Coda? Anybody? Anybody who sees that movie, Coda, they come, I love that movie. I love that movie. That's great. I love this particular television show. I love my car. I love my new motorcycle. I love all of these things. And that word love covers a lot of things. But you know what? When we say I love fill in the blank, we're usually talking about the way I feel about something. It's I have this warm feeling towards this puppy or this item on the menu that I'm about to consume. Or whatever. The interesting thing is that in the Bible, the word that is used in the New Testament, you've probably heard it, is agape. And it's not foundationally focused on feeling. Here's a couple of descriptive phrases, and you can fill in the blanks. 
Biblical love is not primarily the way I feel about someone or something. It isn't devoid of emotion, but doesn't lead with emotion. It is a decision to make a selfless and sacrificial commitment to another. I'll let you take time to fill that in. Again, it's not devoid of emotion, but it doesn't lead with emotion. There is a decision in there. Taking it a step further, love is more volitional and actional than emotion. That word actional, I just made up. You're not going to find it in the dictionary, but it works with the AL ending, so I put it in there. Love is more volitional and actional than emotional. A relationship with another in which the other person is the primary focus, not self. Now, I have heard men say, I love my wife. But they're generally talking about the way I feel towards my wife. And I've heard people say, yeah, I love God. I don't hate him, so it must mean I love him. So, yeah, I love God. I have no negative emotions towards him. Unless he doesn't do things the way I want him to do uh, at certain points. But overall, on the broad scale, I don't hate him, so I have some decent feelings for him. So I love God. And, yeah, I love people in the church. That not everybody does things quite the way they should and the way I think they should. But, yeah, I love God. I have... Generally good feelings about the church. I've heard men who will physically abuse their wife or their children, but they'd be quick to affirm, yes, I love my wife. They're talking about feeling. They're not talking about their actions. They're talking about their feelings towards. And I'm here to tell you that any man who physically harms his wife or his children cannot accurately say, I love her or them. Because the actions, the choices, the volition does not follow up with that statement. True biblical love focuses on the decision and the action, not just the feeling. And so we're about to take a trip on the love train if you will. I had thought about doing my imitation, my rendition of the OJ's, the love train. But the advent of YouTube pretty much prevents me from doing that because I would be marked for life. And for that reason, you guys are spared. But there was a group years ago that had a hit called the love train. And we're going to look at this love train. And I have to tell you, it comes from uh, Campus Crusade, the, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, had this, this idea of a locomotive, a coal car, and a caboose. And the locomotive is what pulls, and he's talking about salvation, the lo locomotive is the fact, uh, the coal car is the faith, and the caboose is the emotion, the feeling. And so I've taken that and in this description, uh, adapting the love train for, or the train for, for context of love, here's the locomotive. Love is 
a selfless and sacrificial approach, attitude, and action directed toward another. That is what drives the train. Selfless and sacrificial approach means the way I view another person, attitude is how I am thinking about them, the way I think about them, and how I treat them, action. And it's directed toward another. True biblical love is focused, always focused outward to others. So that's the locomotive. The coal car that fuels this locomotive is desire and commitment to serve that person. So what drives this love train is the selfless and sacrificial approach, attitude, and action directed toward another. But what gives the coal, and some of you don't know uh, a steam locomotive, the coal got the burner going, boiler going, that produced the steam. So the fuel for this train is this desire and commitment to serve that person. The caboose is corresponding emotions. Make no doubt, there are emotions involved in love. The point is, emotions don't drive the train. The selfless, sacrificial approach, attitude, and action directed towards another, that's what drives the train. It's fueled by desire and commitment to serve that person, that's what fuels it, and the emotions follow. Anybody here ever see a caboose try to pull a train? It doesn't. Actually, the train can function without a caboose. Now, love is going to have emotions, but it's not driven by emotions. And sometimes, depending on all kinds of factors, the feelings, the emotions may waver back and forth, but that doesn't stop the train from going. How many of you who are employed full-time always feel like going to work in the morning? Anybody? Always wake up feeling? How many of you wake up feeling sometimes, I don't want to go to work today? Anybody? Yeah. A bunch of pagans. A bunch of heathens. But you have a commitment to employment because you have a commitment to paying your bills, providing for your family, take care of your needs. So despite your feeling that morning, you get up and you go to work. And the same thing with going to school. I suspect every student in here wakes up every morning and say, yeah, another day at school. Yes, let's go. Well, you go because, well, you're committed to and your parents will make you go. But You're not a hypocrite for going to work when you don't feel like it. And you're not a hypocrite for going to school when you don't feel like it. You do the right things even if the feeling's not there. Now with love, it's the same thing. Love is having this selfless, sacrificial attitude and approach and action towards another and this commitment and desire to serve that person. And the emotions are there, there's no doubt about it, but that's not what determines love. So when we say we're going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus said was the greatest commandment, that incorporates feeling, but it's not driven by feeling. 
It is driven by this desire and commitment to serve God. And so I'm going to serve God with a selfless, sacrificial approach, attitude, and action towards Him. And the same thing with with people. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It doesn't talk about how you feel about doing that. It talks about having this commitment, this desire and commitment to serve my wife through a selfless, sacrificial uh, approach, attitude, and action directed towards her. Not about how it's going to benefit me. Not so that she's going to smile at me and wink. But she's because I want to serve her. And I want to love her as Christ loved the church. And this should give us the picture. God's approach to us, when God so loved the world, it was his selfless and sacrificial approach, attitude, and action directed towards us, fueled by his desire and commitment to meet our greatest needs. And that's how God has loved us. And so we are called to love him that way, and we are called to love each other that way. And as we do, we strengthen that core, that foundational component that is supposed to identify as the mark of a healthy church, that aspect of loving God and loving each other. So, some Monday morning application. We've got to remember to keep first things first. Years ago, I heard a phrase directed at a denomination, keep the main thing the main thing. They weren't talking about love, unfortunately. But I would say, for us, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Loving God and loving others. So I ask the question, what is my highest goal, my greatest ambition today and this week? Is it knowing, loving, and serving God? What is our obsession? Is our obsession money, financial security? Is our obsession status at work or at school? Or is my obsession this incredible, inconceivable, Almighty God of the universe, the King who created all things and who, for some reason, decided to love us. And this King who took on flesh, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, or some translations say, made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant, a bondservant. Almighty king of the universe coming and taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in human form and being found in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are we obsessed with this king? Do we, in gratitude, focus all of our energies our heart, soul, mind, and strength on loving this king who created us and loved us and made it possible for us to have a relationship with him. That is the core. That is the the central component of 
what we are supposed to be as a church and as individuals. Next question. We're going to be busy. You know, I've tried to get away from it, and I can't. It's just an insane schedule. But in the midst of our busyness, does that flow out of my love for God, or do I use it as an effort to gain His love? Something to think about and ask yourself. Next, in the midst of all of that busyness, am I remembering to love God and others? That's so easy to forget. Am I remembering to love God and others in the midst of all of the insanity? Then the next question, am I remembering to, let's go back one. Let's, uh, am I remembering to love God and others in the midst of trials and struggles? Trials and struggles are there. As a church, as individuals, we're going to come up against things that threaten to undo us and we have to overcome them. But my personal experience is it's easy to forget about loving God and focus on just the challenge, just that which threatens me. The key is, in the midst of all of this, to remember love and to enter into or process these struggles from the standpoint of love, loving God and loving others. You know, when I'm overwhelmed with busyness or with uh, struggles, I hate to say it, but it's easy to forget my responsibility to love my wife, my family, co-workers. So as these things happen, it's essential, it is critical that I go back and think, okay, I do have these, these challenges to overcome, but in the course of addressing these challenges, I've got to keep my eye, my mind, my heart focused on loving God and loving each other and allow Him to accomplish His work in the midst of these struggles. Next question. I am called to moral purity, but in the midst of focusing on my quest for moral purity, am I loving God and others? Is my quest for moral purity flowing out of my love for God, or is it an effort to try and gain His love? We should try to remain morally pure because of our love for Him. And then finally, am I remembering to base my quest for doctrinal fidelity on my love for God and others? Again, when we get into this mindset of protecting our doctrinal boundaries, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we're supposed to in all of our doctrinal issues, be reflecting our love for God and our love for others. So in the course of life, it's always good to ask the question, where's my love for God and others in all of this? Is it at the core of what's motivating me to go these directions and do these things? Or am I setting it aside? Do I have a compartment that, okay, on Sundays... I've got Sunday set aside so I can love God and love everybody else. But man, Monday through Friday, I've got to tackle all of these things. And Saturday, I've got to work on my house. Love for God should be at the core. 
and flowing out from that is all of these challenges and responsibilities. And if we lose sight of the core, we do so at our own peril. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, but I want to leave with this closing thought before I close in prayer. Jesus indicated at the end of this particular passage a promise to the one who conquers. And this isn't conquering the obstacles. This is conquering the challenge of keeping our love for God, not emotion, but volition, action, uh, keeping our love for God core. So the challenge for us that we've got to conquer is maintaining this focus and application of love for God and others. To that person who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to see a resurrection of the tree of life that comes from the beginning of Genesis. And I'm looking forward to when Peter addresses that because it's some really good stuff. But understand, getting to paradise is directly linked to love. Not to busyness, not to conquering challenges, not moral purity, not uh, theological purity, doctrinal purity. It's linked to love. Now, again, Lest anybody misunderstand. Loving God will lead to the right kind of activities. It will lead to overcoming and conquering obstacles. It will lead to moral purity and it will lead to right beliefs. But it's the loving God and loving others that opens the door for us to experience the riches of his blessing for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you that you didn't base this on feeling, but that you made a decision. We thank you for the compassion and the grace and the mercy, all of which has your feeling, but thank you that you chose to take care of our deepest needs. Through Christ on Calvary, His shed blood necessary for the remission of our sins. We thank You for that. We thank You for Your desire to draw us to Yourself so that we can know this fellowship with You. Father, touch our hearts. Remind us anew and afresh of Your love. And then, Father, Empower us to love you the way we ought and to love each other the way we ought. For your purposes, for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.